Hello, and welcome back to another episode of International Immersion, a podcast where we seek to capture people, culture, events, and all the things that make this world of ours the place it is. So for today's episode, I have my good friend Andy back, and it's a very unique episode today because I'm very happy to say that he just released an article and I'm very interested to hear about it, and having just read it, it's very interesting, and it has to do with uh, Chinese-Mongolia relations. So, Andy, it's great to have you back again today. Oh, thank you, Sean, as usual, for, for inviting me. And yeah, it, it is a great pleasure to you know, speak today about this uh, article concerning relations between China and Mongolia. Yeah, um, I'm... Nowadays, um, like historically, I yeah, I must say, you know, having read it, it's uh, you do a very good job breaking down the historiography of the relationship, and then you kind of go into the main points. And particularly, you discuss the uh, mining industry and how that is, in a way, a big source of influence for the relationship between the two countries. So, um, you know, just to kind of start off with, maybe you could kind of give us a general uh, summary of your. Art of your article, and then we can kind of go from there. Absolutely. So, so Mongolia, what, what is the first thing that comes into your mind when I, when I mention the word Mongolia? It could be uh, Chinggis Khan, the great conqueror yep. uh, of our days, you know, a long time ago. He, he just conquered the whole world, basically. Um, it could also be, you know, one like vastness, you know, Mongolia is usually associated with just a very vast. Uh, place full of green, a very beautiful steppe, you know, where, where, you know, people ride horses, and you can imagine this nomad civilization there, uh, just trying to, you know, raise their animals and whatnot. And it could also be mining, because the truth, truth be told, Mongolia is one of the world's largest producers of, you know, minerals. We're speaking here about copper, we're speaking about uh, iron, and some, uh, well, and also gold because they are very big in gold. And it turns out that you know the way Mongolia, you know, produces these minerals and exports them to well, not a very select group of countries has a lot to do with uh, politics and internal diplomacy within their country. So, in, in a nutshell, what I mean to say is that Mongolia produces uh, of Mongolia's GDP. Mining corresponds to around, I would say, seventy to eighty percent. So very that percentage in mining. Right? You said seventy to eighty percent. Yes, that's mining. that's a so lot of dependence on one sector of the economy. I mean, for any, yeah, for so any country, commodity heavy. So so one issue that we can mention right now is that you know it's very prone to fluctuations and you know the prices of copper, gold, which happen very often. You know, very much so. Yes. It's demand and supply, right? In there. And, but if that is not enough, well, of those 80, like, let's take the upper bound, of those 80% of that GDP, uh, of those, because all of that is exported, it's not used for internal consumption, 86% of all of that goes to China. So if you make the math, uh, like I would say, roughly speaking, you would say that uh, China is responsible for 70% of Mongolia's GDP. Like, that's also an upper bound. So there is a lot of reliance in China's will to buy Mongolia's minerals, Mongolia's exports. So, so even though 
it is an independent country because it has been since you know the early 1900s. There is a lot of economic dependence that you know questions how independent politically Mongolia is, because many of the decisions that its president wants to take sometimes that uh, you know not necessarily go uh, in the in the same lines that the Chinese politician who wanted to uh, can affect its economy. Uh, sometimes, for instance, there has been a famous case where, uh, so Mongolia, so as a, to provide some context, um, Mongolia and the Tibet, the region of China, the autonomous region of China, they share the same type of Buddhism, which uh, I don't remember which type it is, but it's the, I know it's the same type. Which means that ties to the Dalai Lama have always been very strong. And very recently, well, four years ago in 2016, the Dalai Lama visited Mongolia because it's just, you know, to, in the same way the Pope would visit other countries or other Christian countries. And it turns out that, you know, how there's always these sort of like conflicts between China and the Dalai Lama. There has been a lot going on in that uh, regard. And and as you could expect, China didn't like at all the fact that the Dalai Lama visited their neighboring country. Um, and in response to that event, the Chinese government decided to close the, the border crossings in Mongolia. And as you know, if you, if you grab a map, Mongolia is a landlocked country. It is split, you know, on the north side of Russia, the southern border, you have China. Uh, and essentially what happens is that you cannot export your goods. And they did that for about a month. That means that like that, that affected very strongly Mongolia's GDP. Because it, it couldn't just like it, it the only thing they do is just export or minerals, they just couldn't do it. Um, because another another point to mention is that the closest port uh, out of which these minerals are exported to is in China. It's in it's very close to Tianjin. It's about a, a 1,000 kilometer train ride. While the closest alternative on the Russian side is Vladivostok, but you need to like, it goes all the way around Manchuria in northern China. So it takes around 3,000 kilometers to do the whole ride. So you can see that logistically speaking, it, it is a lot more expensive and it takes a lot more time to just like, you know, send your goods through Russia. So essentially, that, that's. I would say that the title of the article is called Between a Rock and a Hard Place. And well, China, Mongolia, China, Mongolia relationship through Mongolia. Why between a rock and a hard place? Because you know, every decision that, that Mongolia takes can deeply affect the, its economy. Generally, because you know, have, having very strong neighbors on either either one of its sides kind of limits the, the possibilities that, that it has uh, at a political level. So, so yeah, th these are some of the, like, in a very high level, some of the things that I explore in that paper. No, you definitely capture that in the paper, especially on your analysis section when you go into discussing the situation with the different mining, mining entities in Mongolia and just the sheer amount of, you know, of minerals that China buys from them, and basically they're their largest, you know, buyer by far, you exactly. know, and how that can be seen to influence their domestic policy and also, you know, things that they do just because they're economically so dependent on China buying, you know, consistently mm -hmm. from them, as you just highlighted. So 
and also I think it's interesting in the article you kind of you you create a nice historiography about kind of the history of the relations throughout through the last you know through the previous centuries and how things have changed and then you also talk about the Sino-Soviet split in the 1960s and how that influenced relations and then you know post Cold War how things have progressed from there so it's very interesting so I mean so I could tell you did a lot of research when you were you know putting the article together but I found the historiography was a great setup to kind of give people who are not as I'd say familiar with you know that part of the world or with that period of history or political political well, events. Well, well, thank you first for for your nice comments. But but I, the the main thing is uh, to understand uh, how we got to this place uh, right now. You know why are China Mongolia relations so complicated and why have they reached this state? Yeah, we need to look back. Uh, we could even begin uh, at the Yuan Dynasty, which is when, well, when Mongolia conquered China. That, that's when I, I would say that's when relations began. That's when interactions between those two peoples began. Uh, and wh- why am I mentioning this? Why, why is it important to know this? Because you know the, the way the Mongols view the Chinese and the Chinese view the Mongols affects a lot about how diplomacy is made. Uh, if, we, if we fast forward many, many years to the beginning of the Qing Dynasty, for instance. Um, I mean, like again, Qing Dynasty, they, they, they have done good things, they have done bad things, but in these outer territories, which was how Mongolia and the Tibet were known, for instance, they kind of oppressed the people in there, especially towards the, the latter days of the dynasty, because these were like the frontier, right? And after like 100 years of humiliation, you know, they wanted to use these uh, especially the people in there, you know, as like, you know, military reserves and to protect the border lines from, from the like the real mainland in China. And so they saw a lot of political oppression. The uh, many Chinese merchants would go into outer Mongolia because there's also like an inner Mongolia province that used to be part of, of Mongolia before. It's just like now part of China. They went all the way to outer Mongolia. And they would just buy lands. They, they would just, uh, they would rape women in there. They would just carry out all sort of atrocities. So many different things. Uh, and that has greatly influenced the way the Mongols see the Chinese. Um, and then in 1911 comes, uh, the, the Republic of China is formed. So that is taken as a, right, right before the Republic of China is formed, the, the Mongols, the outer Mongols, take that as an opportunity to declare their own independence. And, and while they managed to do that, it would only be until the late 19, uh, like 1930s when they actually managed to do that with the help of the, of the Soviets. You know, they were coming all the way from there. So the, the Russians were also very fundamental in, in creating the Mongolian state. Uh, and as such, because they, they allowed Mongolia to become independent from China, they, they usually, the Mongols usually followed the Russian way of thought. So during the Sino-Soviet split, uh, of course, the Mongols sided with the Russians in there. Uh, and essentially what happened is that all of these feelings of resentment from the Qing dynasty uh, that had been lived before, they just resurged. Uh, and that's, I would say, when like, widespread Sinophobia began again. Uh, towards the Mongols, because there, there was a, a period in the 1950s where there were a lot of there was a lot of Chinese investment in Mongolia, particularly with respect to the 
Trans-Mongolian Railroad, which crossed all the way from, from Russia to China through Mongolia. But they were all kicked out. You know, the, the Mongols freaking hate them. Uh, and then 1990s come, you know, the, the Soviet Union falls. Um, Mongolia is no longer a satellite state. They, they, they go through a very peaceful democratic revolution. They establish a democratic government. Uh, and folks, the story is that they no longer have Russia uh, as, their, as their big partner. So everything that they produce, it will no longer go to the Soviet Union. So it's time to look for new partners. And that magically, or like coincidentally, it, it is also occurring at the same time that, you know, Deng Xiaoping with his uh, reform policies are also bringing China out of uh, you know, the Cultural Revolution and, and like many years of just not developing the country. Uh, so yeah, it, it looked like a perfect match. Well, Mongolia could supply uh, many essential materials for China's growth. Uh, and as China's group, Mongolia also grew at the same time. Uh, and so essentially that's why we saw in the last few years double-digit growth in Mongolia, uh, which was fascinating. Yeah, I think I spoke a little bit too much about the, 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 like, the quick history. No, no, I think, no, no, you're absolutely correct. You know, in order to understand why we are at the place we are now, we have to understand the history. And that explains the feelings, the sentiments, and the thoughts of people in Mongolia to Chinese and vice versa, as this could be applied to any country or pair of countries around the world. So I think anytime you want to discuss a topic, you have to have a historical context. You know, may not be a lot, but you have to have something to set the stage and for the reader to understand that. And, you know, in this case, you can definitely see how that would feed into the main part of your article, which is about the mining industry and just specifically how much the Chinese have invested into it, with plus, you know, their own companies being involved, the regulations, and then also both positive and negative aspects of, of that. No, absolutely. There is, um, you know, um, that is a great point. I don't know where to begin. Just, just to say before I forget that, you know, speaking of regulations, you know, when the mining industry is not really a very regulated industry. Those people just do, you know, like these open air mines, they just explode the whole territory. They extract the minerals and then they just eat the whole area completely. Uh, so, the big thing that is going on right now is that even, or not, not only China buys all of these exports from Mongolia, but there's like literally Chinese companies operating in Mongolian soil carrying out all of this work. So, one would think that Mongolia is basically setting itself out. China. And they and bear in mind this is just a case study and it's happening between as you just mentioned a second ago between China and other pairs of, of countries too. They just go there, they explore your resources, they leave you just empty. Uh, and then what do you do? You have polluted lands. Um, recall from earlier that Mongolia is a like a nomad, it's a very nomad country still. Uh, even half so it has 3 million people in its own territory, out of which around half of it live in the capital. The other half, they're just riding horses and, you know, living in years. They're still, you could, yeah, you could say they're still at very much in a nomadic state of existence outside. Exactly. It's not a pretty much, it's not very settled, right? And so they, they, those nomadic communities, they need these lands to graze their animals. You know, they, they, they need it for, for growth, for living. 
and they're just being exploited. Particularly if you take a look at the Gobi Desert, which is like right, like the, the big area that separates Mongolia and Inner Mongolia, um, this region, they're just creating a lot of degradation, environmental harm. Uh, there's water water shortage, you know, water that goes to the mines, you know, to refine. I don't know what like chemical process they need the water for. No, mining is a mining is a very water water heavy industry. It requires a lot of water to process minerals, power, power machinery, and then also extract. And the you know so, and that's you know, and as you can see around the world, like in Brazil, for example, you know that's been a big issue with you know. With specifically with pollution and also, like you said, devastation. Mining, yeah, open pit mining, basically when it's done, it leaves a very devastated landscape in its wake, you know, regardless of who's doing it. It's just, it can be very destructive and all that refill, if it's not, if it's not just thrown back in, it can be used to make concrete or whatever else. So you definitely are kind of left yeah. with kind of a pockmarked landscape as opposed, as opposed to actually shaft mining, which the surface is not touched, you just go down. It is nuts. It is nuts. So, so we ask ourselves, what can Mongolia do faced with this situation? Well, there isn't really many options they can do, right? Because at the end, one interesting statistic to point out is that while China represents, uh, like, it's the number one trading partner of Mongolia, is I mean, it's of course not the same on the other way around. Mongolia is China's ninety-fourth. A partner in terms of volume, so it's not that Mongolia that China needs Mongolia, but Mongolia needs China more. So they suddenly decide, I don't know, I, I won't work with you anymore because your companies are exploiting at my territory. Uh, you're polluting my land, and you you buy too much for me, and I don't like the politics. I mean, like China has the power to look for other partners, for other trading trading partners. Well, and that goes back to what you're saying, specifically with since Mongolia's economy is so is so mining centric, and that they sell most of their mineral mineral resources to China that they extract. That puts them in a position where they can't really choose. Choose, you know, they could set up new partnerships, but that would take time and energy, and it would leave them, in, at least in the short term, very vulnerable, you know, economically. Yeah, I. I guess in the long run, I mean, there's also one important point to mention is that, yeah, they, they do have one of the largest mines, copper mines in the world, but that doesn't last forever. So it, it is time to begin to look for alternatives. Yeah, because mining is not renewable. Once you extract that, once you extract it, it's gone forever. So it is gone forever. So, so again, Mongolia is between a rock and a hard place. As your article is titled. <laughs> Literally, like, it is between a rock, right? Because you're just exploiting minerals in there. I didn't know that, but I, I was pointed at that out by my professor. Like, it's literally between a rock and a hard place. Yeah. Because of mining industry. Not, not just a title, but also very literal in the sense. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it's an interesting thing. So besides, yeah, so we kind of touched on the historiography, and I thought it was interesting, you know, the amount of, amount of time you had to take to find, like, examples of, like, the actual mining operations and what the two were trying to accomplish to both to both maximize the, the, the their ability to, you know, increase profits, but at the same time prevent exploitation and other things. I thought it was interesting, like, in your article you discussed, like, you know, some of the Chinese companies involved 
in the mining, the Mongolian government has set quotas that you have to have you have to hire so many Mongolian workers versus Chinese workers, and how that that was interesting, and how that's also caused some tension. Yeah, no, I, I, absolutely, and there, the, well, they, they have responded uh, thankfully because otherwise, well, like of course, there were environmental laws, but also most importantly, to detain immigration from Chinese workers by setting quotas on how many they can have and. If I'm not mistaken, they limit every foreign company to operate with ten, like at least 90% of the workforce has to be locally trained, has to be has to be part of the local population, which in a way I think it's a it is a good move because you know the know-how, the expertise of the mining remains in Mongolia, and you're giving all of these human resources, all of these you know efforts to train the local population, so it empowers them. Instead of actually, you know, bringing your own people, they, they do the job and they, they just leave. So we, so like us, the, well, not us, not, not me, but them uh, that are there, they, when these folks leave, then what, what do they do? Like, how do we mine? They, they have to ask themselves. And of course, and, and, yeah, and of course, when you have, uh, when you have companies, foreign companies, they're going to, of course, bring in some of their own people because they have to. It's their company, they have to, but it's more about your the point that you've highlighted is, you know, that in order for things to be more balanced, you want to make sure that where you're operating, that knowledge expertise is, is passed on. You, it not just comes in and comes back out again. So I can see for the Mongolians, that's very important that they want their workforce to be trained and, and become experts in their own way. So they're not entirely dependent on the foreign, just on the foreign company by itself. No, absolutely. It's, it's just like, you know, after... They began in this industry by like, heavily exploring the minerals since the 1990s. So we are speaking here about 30 years of experience that they have gained. That, that is like, I mean, mining seems like a very mundane task, but there's a lot of technology and a lot of, you know, um, procedures and methods are involved uh, within the industry. So it's not that you're really, it's, and being Mongolia's export, it's also its competitive edge. So it's not that you want to really want those secrets to go out to the world, because otherwise you, you would lose that edge that makes you, you know, be in the position where you are, which is the, the economy in Asia that is right, well, up to a few years ago, it was rising the fastest, like even growing, growing at a, you know, at a steeper rate than Singapore and, and even China, like very close to China, actually. Yeah, it's not an interesting thing that you know the yeah the rate the economic rate of growth in Mongolia was was actually quite stunning and it was like in some years more I think if I remember correctly over ten percent in in some cases, but also mm-hmm. at the same time that's caused like inflation and other like, you yes. know because like in the banking industry like you know you can get ridiculous interest rates if you you know if you invest in Mong- you know in Mongolian <laughs> currency, but the inflation rate is also very high because of the rapid growth. So there's definitely pros and cons to that as well of a, of a fast versus a slow growing economy. No, absolutely. There's also this famous economic term known as the Dutch disease, which means that uh, when you focus too much of your of your GDP in just developing a single industry, um, well, then, then well, it's not that focusing too much. In essence, is that uh, you have this opportunity cost, uh, you have like this competitive edge in there, and so you're developing that, and people buy a lot of that, so you continue developing that, and then that means that all of the all of the money that you make, all of that revenue that the government makes, 
goes into just making mining be better and it doesn't go into diversifying the industry, which is something they should be doing right now. As and the old, to... yeah, as the old as the old adage says, you know, says don't put all your eggs in one basket. You know, you wanna you can you can still have maybe leading industries, but you want, don't want to have one big one. You can have you want to have many big ones or a lot of small ones, some intermediate size and large size. That way, if one of them gets hit really hard. You have the others to compensate for that loss. It's just like in a way, just like how people invest. You don't throw all your money in one stock. You want to throw it in ETFs or across oh, many in, stocks. Many exactly. So like the mining industry become better, so demand for your products, of course, they, they keep on rising, and if they keep on rising. That means that there's a. I mean, from what I remember when I studied economics a couple of years ago, is that there is more demand for your currency, and that makes your currency appreciate. And one of the, those side effects is that it creates inflation. Exactly. Um, it makes things more expensive for the local population, which, again, not, not all of them participate in mining. And remember that it's not that salaries are extremely high anyways. So, yeah. um, so, it, it, so something that is good ends up killing you. Exactly, and that and that can be seen, you know, very directly. And like on the for the average average person, you could say like if the inflation rate is like, well, you know that all too well. We as we discussed previously about inflation in Argentina, it's also high in Mongolia. So if you make you know a hundred hundred dollars there, and inflation is ten ten percent, you've just lost ten percent of your of your money's value. Absolutely. Well, so it, it's not, nothing is like Argentina in terms of <laughs> inflation. <laughs> I think for, for them, probably high inflation is a single digit number. For us, high inflation is uh, above 20, above 30. <laughs> uh, below, oh. that, below that, I, I would be dancing. Uh, that would be low inflation. <laughs> Yeah, I remember. I think from talking to people, I think the, the U.S. the highest inflation recently was in the 1970s, and when you had when you got up closer to 10 percent, I think in the early 70s. But now I think it's it's in around the two percent range, in yeah, you know, for most of the time. It, it varies every year, but it's it kind of stays within a predictable range. Yeah, that that is that is so funny. Wow. And then, uh, well, since you mentioned the U.S., I just remember one more thing, which uh, would be good to mention is that so. Mongolia only has these neighbors, as we mentioned, but there was also the possibility of pursuing this so-called policy, and it's called the third neighbor policy, which is finding some sort of overseas, not, not bordering, of course, neighbor that will be willing to help out Mongolia. Uh, and that is the case with the US and also with Japan as well. Those are the two countries with which Mongolia has the strongest ties. Um, not, nonetheless, the U.S. presence uh, hasn't been so strong in Mongolia recently, but it is a very strategic place when you think about it, because it is between the other two superpowers in the world, which is Russia, Russia and China. So we will hope, perhaps, that uh, that is developed more thoroughly and perhaps the more diplomatic diplomatic ties are established between the two nations. No, and I think from what you what your article stresses, I think that it would be very practical and useful for Mongolia to start to expand its diplomat diplomatic relations and its specifically its ties because while there's really no immediate substitute for China or you know in you know in terms of its situation by developing more ties and, and developing more trading partners that are willing to you know invest invest and buy their products that will give them more more avenues to export it may still be difficult to get them out 
but the least have more partners that will, are willing to buy the products. And you know, and it's always it, it's always shown that whenever one country is very heavily dependent on another country, that can be negative in the long term. I mean, it may not it may not be that way because it's what any country's intention, but it just it can be like economic downturns, problems internally, externally, all these things can can affect that relationship. And like you said, you know, if China closes the border off of them for a month and they won't buy anything, then the economy can tank very quickly. That, that, that was, you know, and it's, again, it's not the first time that happened, uh, but it, it's just that you have no choice. Hence, like you said, again, 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 between a rock and a hard place. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I guess it's a fitting time. To, to, no, I think it's very uh, fitting, you know, and, you know, in, in many cases, like, you know, from reading the article, there are definitely a lot of positives, you know, there's more, more industry and more investment going into Mongolia from China, which is positive. But at the same time, there are the negative effects from, you know, both, I'd say, on the political, economic, and, you know, environmental side side of the coin mm-hmm. as well. Yeah, and so now I think to wrap up, well, wrap up really because this is, a, I think we will end up discussing a lot. <laughs> that, well, one thing that is interesting, if, if, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't, I, if I'm not mistaken, Mongolia is not part of the current um, One Belt initiative you know, uh, that China is undergoing right now. You know the, the new Silk Road project? Yes. Mongolia is not part of it. Because they, they've been struggling to get like be part of the corridor, but they aren't. Uh, while many other countries are, you know, particularly in Southeast Asia, in Eurasia. Um, because they, they, they were struggling, particularly because of like trying to pursue these relations with the U.S., uh, that, that's why they couldn't get into the the, the, the initial statements, the, the, the initial plans of the project. But, but one interesting thing to consider from this is that, all right, so these are relations between China and Mongolia. Now, now think about, you know, these heavy infrastructure projects um, that, that, that China is undergoing right now, building railroads that directly feed from the mainland into Vietnam from the mainland into Myanmar, from the mainland into like lots of places of building ports in Sri Lanka, in Southeast Asia, in, in Eastern Africa that are administered by the Chinese themselves. So that's basically Chinese territory. You know, the, 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 the amount of control that you're indirectly given, giving to the Chinese government in, like in exchange for investment in your country, that, that is a... There is a big, like a big question to, to consider because in the case of Mongolia, the, the main artery that comes in and out from, from Mongolia and goes into China is the Trans-Mongolian Railroad. But something to something interesting about it is that during the Sino-Soviet split, actually, the the you know the, the gauge, the, there's like you know the, like the different trains, you know, have different gauges on the rail. Yeah, the tracks different sizes, whether they're wider or narrower. Yes. Exactly. So they, in Mongolia, they follow the, the same standards in Russia, but uh, but in China, they don't. I think in China, it's a little bit wider. So every time a train wants to cross uh, between both countries, they have to change the boogies, which are like the which is the structure that is beneath the wall. Yep. That is a pretty laborious process, if you ask me. And it's kind of a natural barrier uh, to stop things from coming in uh, from Mongolia, right? But but like that is not the case in these new investments that are being done through the One Belt uh, Initiative. You're just 
it's the same railroad track. It sounds like a, it is a very simple idea, but it's just giving direct, like it's feeding directly into the country from, from the other, you know, resource rich, uh, you know, periphery of the mainland. And, and, and that speeds up the process and they can exploit everything, everything faster. And, and what you, you might wonder what, besides goods, right? What are some other things that come, can come in and out from, from China? And I, God knows, right? God knows why, what you can do with that. It's just, I think it's just very dangerous to give that, 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 that amount of flexibility and that amount of you know, control. They, they can, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't use the word invade, but they can visit you more often than you would want through, through those schemes. No, I can definitely see the, the, the argument you're making in that, you know, like just kind of using the railroad gauge as an example, like if you have the different gauges that it makes things, you know, you know, like stop and adjust and then tr transition from different system to different system. If you don't have that, well, like you said, it may not, it, it may not amount to anything, but at the same time, it prevents, it, you know, it gives, you know, China more, I'd say leverage or ability. I say ability is a better word to yeah. do, you know, you know, involve itself in the affairs of other countries. No, like, that country is a It's just like you're, you're having direct access. It's like, imagine, well, I, well, I, well, I wouldn't, I just like, I think it's pretty clear from there, just saying that they can directly get inside and have more control. That's the railroad, but through the ports. You know, through military bases, you know, or in like small islands around the region, they can also control like the maritime routes uh, coming in and out of the country, and, and not only their country, but like the other countries too. Uh, so, so it's interesting. It, it's just um, while I'm a big supporter of you know investments done by China because they, they, they do have a lot of value, it's also important to question as well. You know, what what is the you know, what are some hidden implications, if any, about that? Or what, what are some long-lasting consequences that these could bring, um, particularly because will that, will that challenge the sovereignty of, of my country or, or not in exchange for immediate economic development? Exactly. It's kind of weighing the short-term versus long-term, you know, benefits, you know, and and I think it kind of goes just down to decision making. Any decision you make, especially very large decisions, that, you know, person to person, country to country, organization to organization, things have to be thought through very thoroughly, and not mm -hmm. just the short term. You can't be enamored with the initial. Oh, this is what I'm going to get tomorrow, or the next month, or even next year. You need to look at decades or even longer. What? Yeah. And then I think a lot of the times that is ignored you know the immediate the immediate satisfaction instant gratification that is what is focused on but the long-term effects yeah, or... there, there is pressure to make decisions fast yes because, because that that's what politics requires to see changes or, or things that happen instantaneously right because that that's how you how that's how the political system works you know like that's how parties work because because the people see that they have done something. They, they can see with their own eyes. They can see the new port. They can see the new railroad. Uh, and it's, uh, and of course, it's our Chinese friends who are building that. But now, like, nobody would ever wonder or question, you know, what, what, is this actually, you know, is, is it, I mean, I, I, of course, it is a good thing. But, you know, what, think it, you know, a little, you got to go a little more beyond. 
Exactly. It's like you have to you have to think about or or examine unnecessary consequences of that. Yeah, there's gonna be plenty of benefits from it, but nothing is entirely great or not, or entirely bad. There's always everything is going to be a mixed bag. It just may may le, le, you know go more positive, more negative than anything. Yeah, and I, I would say so. Like just you know making you know wrapping up nicely this topic is the thing that. We don't know because we, we, we still don't know, you know, whether all of these like one like Belt Road, Belt and Road initiative projects will actually end up doing, you know, uh, if it will be successful. So far, it seems to be doing. And, and what are re really China's intentions there? Uh, we do have China-Mongolia relations as a pretty nice case study to see there. And we, we also have what is going on in Hong Kong and Tibet, but particularly I want to like, let's focus on, you know, two independent regions, like Mongolia and China. And there are the things that have been going on and the fact that, you know, borders have been closed uh, because when you develop too much reliance on the other country, uh, you're just hoping that the other one will be willing always to leave the border open to uh, use their ports. Borders have been closed, uh, exports have increased dramatically to one country or that increases economic dominance. And, all, and so many other consequences, right? So you have that as a case study. So the question is, will it become something similar to that? I don't know. But, but like that's the only reality that we have, the only thing with which we can compare uh, what a future alternative could be. So all of these countries that are being part of these projects, they should have that in mind. They should see China-Mongolia relations as a as a means, you know, to learn to to see what not to do, um, and, and you know, question if, if it doesn't if it doesn't matter, you know, having a direct railroad link with, with the same gauge, you know, the same tracks there, if it doesn't matter. Yeah, go ahead, but just be warned that it gives too much control and they suddenly to close the borders, and you're overly reliant on that railroad to export your goods. Um, whatever mine you used then you're doomed yeah well any very you know very well put and i think you you know i think your article and your analysis of it in our discussion here really kind of puts into puts into people's minds that any decision especially between governments and you know countries have to understand what the consequences both positive and negative are of allowing other countries to you know have a larger stake in their affairs and may not even direct but in primarily indirectly through trade economics and you know other factors so i think that's a, a very important topic that countries all countries have to take into consideration with whoever they're dealing with you know and yeah I mean, not only china but like any any two pair of countries right i hear the i don't want to pick on china because uh, it's just that like i was analyzing that but uh yes it's just learning with any two pair of countries exactly no i mean very well stated, and you know, I really appreciate the opportunity for you to expand upon your article. And um, I'll make sure to leave the uh, link and information in our podcast description today, so anyone who's interested can read the article. I definitely recommend it. Having read it myself, it's very interesting. There's a lot of good background information, and um, it sets kind of sets the precedent for what the current situation is. So, Sandy, so I mean, I really, again, I really appreciate you joining us today. It's always a pleasure to have you on and to discuss different topics. You know, I'm sure we'll be talking about a lot more in the future. So uh, is there anything else you want to you know, say to our audience before we call it, call it for today? No, I, I just, um, yeah. oh, God, I wish I could say thank you, Mongolia. I think it's 
it's sano or something like that. Uh, correctly, I apologize to the audience if I'm just saying hello. Or, but I, <laughs> just thank you, Judah, and thank you, Sean, for inviting me. Well, Andy, I mean, given we both have studied both studied Chinese for quite a while, you know, I we I totally understand it takes a while to learn a language. So, I mean, knowing no, you know, you being bilingual is or trilingual to an extent is is a feat in of itself, and I think that's you know that's something to be proud of. And I think you know if people have the opportunity to learn languages, that's very can be very useful as both you and I have discovered. All righty. Well, well, Andy, it's a pleasure again, and we'll definitely get back with you and have more discussions on different topics in the near future. So, for everyone, thanks for tuning in. This has been another episode of International Immersion. Uh, please let us know if you have any comments, thoughts, or suggestions. Shoot us an email at internationalimmersionpodcast@gmail.com, and I will make sure to list and Andy's article in the in the podcast description for this episode. So we appreciate you tuning in. Stay safe and let's hope COVID abates soon so we can get back out and start exploring the world, traveling and learning more about the wonderful people that make up this planet of ours. So until next time, this has been another episode of International Immersion and we'll see you on the next one.